Father, we do praise you this morning and do desire that uh, you would accomplish your purposes with the current situation and as was prayed for Pertzers in a dark country, we pray for our dark country and that you would guide the leaders, that you would in fact uh, use the information to give them wise decisions that they would know what to do. And we know that you're sovereign over it and that you, in fact, are going to use this crisis in our country to draw people to yourself and make us sensitive as believers to uh, opportunities and things that we can share with a unbelieving dark world. So we just commit this time in our Study, knowing that uh, you are sovereign over all things. And as we study in this passage of Romans and others, that you communicate the the glory that you're displaying in your creation and in this whole doctrine, even this whole area that we study. And we desire that you be uplifted and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm going to... Get into our study. So in the book of Romans, we've been looking at uh, chapters 9 through 11, and I'm going to just quickly give a quick review, and then there's lots that I'd like to get into. And hopefully I'd like to complete this kind of excursus relating to the doctrine of election. And the reason we're doing it is because the passage in Romans 9, at least, I think deals very directly with this concept and the words are used not only in chapter 9 but also in chapter 11 and particularly we have the the passage in 6 through 9 which tells us about God selecting and God in fact choosing so I'd like to give you kind of a a big picture today on that concept sometimes we look at it narrowly We look at it from uh, the perspective of God choosing individuals and God choosing us, and particularly from the Ephesians 1, 4 passage. I think sometimes if we don't take a step back, I think we get a distorted view. So that's what I'd like to do today. So 9, 6 through 7, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That's kind of the introduction to this whole book in terms of what he's trying to communicate. And he's communicating that within ethnic Israel, all those that are descended from Israel, he's going to go back and show the first century Israel who would raise the question, what has God done? Has he abandoned us, Israel, the nation of Israel, and abandoned the covenants, abandoned all that he promised? And what's the deal that he's now dealing and offering this justification by faith to Gentiles? And they don't have to go through the law and they don't have to live by the law. What's going on? And he's going to answer that. And he starts by taking them back in their history and reviewing a little bit of their beginnings to show them that God is simply dealing in the first century, much like he has done from the beginning of Israel's history, where he selected some over others. So in verse 7, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, not every descendant of Abraham 
was not only part of Israel, but he even calls them children here. In other words, not everyone, and I think he's relating to the first century, not every Jew in the first century is a child of God, even from the very beginning. And then he makes the distinctions, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So he he's not carrying the line, and the nation is not going to come through Ishmael. The nation will come through Isaac. And But he's also including, I think, this concept of, believing from justification by faith that he developed in chapters 1 through 8. And then skip down to verse 11, because this is this is a very powerful statement. For though the twins, referring to Jacob and Esau, so he takes it the next generation, there's going to be a distinction made between two twins, same mother, same descendants, still from Abraham. The descendants of Esau are not Israel. They're not part of the covenant people. So though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, in other words, it's not dependent on them, saw that. And this is all for a particular purpose that God, I believe, from many, many passages, that God initiated in eternity past so that that God's purpose, and by the way, the word or the long phrase, purpose according to his choice, that's actually just two words side by side. The, the word for purpose and the word for the one is translated choice. And we may even translate it God's electing or God's choosing purpose. So he is establishing a principle so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. And it begins in uh, the life of Abraham in terms of Israel. And he's going to use Israel as the example. So chapter 9, I take it as dealing with Israel. In other words, it's not dealing with the church. It's not dealing with believers per se. But I think some of the principles that he's going to develop, we can find that are applicable to the believer and individuals. At least that's the viewpoint that I'm uh, going to take in this. And just real quickly, just to kind of set the tone because of the uh, controversy that this doctrine creates, we need to be reminded, and I'll just go over these quickly. We looked at this last time. It should produce humility, recognizing our depravity, and that uh, we need to trust that what God does and what he's revealed, we need to accept it and try to understand it. And I know there's a little bit of uh, difficulty. So it should produce humility. It should also bring about uh, joy to, to, to realize if you are a genuine believer, you've experienced this grace. And in fact, the whole idea here is grace, God's grace. So we, we should experience his joy. We should also have confidence that what God has promised in the past, everything that he's promised will be fulfilled. And all of the promises that he's given to us will also be fulfilled because that's what he's doing in Romans 9 through 11 is explaining that God is not abandoning Israel. He still has a plan for them, but they are in a period of time where God is reaching out to Gentiles. And it should motivate us from the Ephesians 1, 4 passage. One of the purposes of election in terms of the church age, it should motivate us to holy living. And by the way, I'm going to try to explain that There's lots of purposes in relationship to this 
concept of God choosing, and we need to look beyond just that narrow choosing that we often think of when we talk about the doctrine of election. And that's what I'd like to do today, give you that bigger picture. And then the bottom line, it should cause us to to worship or glorify God. In the Ephesians passage, when he's explaining all of the multitude of blessings, including God choosing us, verse 6, it should cause us to glorify God. And then he gives some more blessings, glorify God. And then a third group of blessings in verse 14, glorifying God. So that these are the responses that we should have. Not anger, not controversy, not argumentation, not questioning, but simply trusting and bowing down before a holy God. So last time we looked at the issues, the responses, and I also gave you a quick overview of some essential understanding. And again, I'm not going to go into the detail, but if you understand the nature of man and the essence of it, I believe in the depravity of man. In other words, man cannot do anything to gain favor before God. That's the essence of Romans 1 through 5. Nor can we do anything to please God to live out the Christian life. That's 6 through 8. So the nature of man is the old nature that the unbeliever, that's all he has is the old nature, is totally depraved. And the question is to what extent does depravity have on volition? And from that we have Uh, differing views that I'll lay out, I hope, as as we get to that point today. So the nature of man, I believe personally that our volition is also affected. It's not excluded. And in fact, we are, you might even say, to some extent, incapable of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ apart from God taking the initiative and convicting and illuminating But that gets into the nature of uh, salvation. So we need to also understand the nature of God, and we need to look at God from a big perspective as well. This doctrine of election does not undermine anything in the nature of God. In fact, uh, here's where you emphasize the idea of the goodness of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the grace of God, all of the areas that uh, we have in terms of God. And God's, God's graciousness. And we need to also consider God's uh, wisdom that what he has revealed to us, this is a wise plan. This plan that he has effected and given us lots of revelation on. It's a wise plan. We need to do the best that we can to understand it and then uh, accept it and simply believe it. So we looked at the nature of God. Don't separate out Or don't impose on God ideas that are not revealed in Scripture. Otherwise, we're going to kind of mess up this whole idea of election. So at every point, we need to keep reminding ourselves of the nature of God. And some of these things we will not be able to understand. The nature of man is such that we are limited in our capacity, even as believers, to understand a lot of things And there is a tension here. There is a tension that we want to maintain and not be out of balance. We remind ourselves of the Isaiah 55 passage, God's ways are not our ways, and the things of God are 
are beyond even our comprehension, the incomprehensibility of God. We looked at the nature of salvation as well. And I believe that salvation is a total work of God from start to finish. I gave you a little brief thumbnail sketch of that last time. And it begins, I hold to the idea that God began in eternity past in the doctrine of election and predestination. And you could include foreknowledge in all of that. And then in time, God calls us and works on us. And not only did he put us in a particular situation such that we would hear the gospel, but that gospel would convict us and that gospel would also illumine us and cause us to realize that the only way that we would have a relationship with God is what Jesus did on the cross. And in that, he convinces us of our need to believe and I don't minimize the, the need and the necessity of faith and believing and that God desires, as the First Timothy 2 passage indicates, he desires all to be saved. Yet we know that many reject. So the volition of man, that's the tension. We need to keep it there. But I believe that God does everything that we need. In fact, I even can give you a couple of verses that indicate that God gives faith itself. And then once we believe, we're justified. We have nothing to do with it. Simply receive it as a gift. That's the nature of salvation. And just as I believe those that are chosen will, in fact, eventually believe, those of us that have believed will, in fact, just as certainly in the future be glorified. And that's in that Romans 8 passage as well. So that's a quick overview of the nature of salvation. And if you keep these doctrines together and complete, then uh, I think it'll help us to understand this doctrine of election. So let's take a look at the terms. And what I want to do here is just give you an idea of the words that are used or translated. In some translated uh, translations, we have the word elect, and that's where that idea and term comes from, and the doctrine comes from these terms. But the doctrine also, I think, goes beyond these terms. And that's what I want to do after we look at the terms. And let's do this quickly, because I want to get to that point where I lay out these options, and then I'll leave it in uh, your ball court to decide what you want to believe. Today, I'm asking you to be Bereans, Check these things out and uh, come to your own decisions concerning particularly this doctrine. Last time I gave a brief overview of the terms. The term is used, and I've mentioned that whenever you look at any term in Scripture, and particularly theological terms, every theological term comes out of the culture. They're not special sanctified or special spiritual words that are invented by the writers of Scripture. God uses the ordinary language of our everyday experience and imports, or you might say inputs, maybe a better description. He inputs a divine perspective on them and gives them theological meaning. I could give you hundreds of examples. In fact, We've done this before in other areas, like the doctrine of justification. That's a legal term, and we spent lots of time looking at it. So the terms that are used here are used in an ordinary sense, simply 
to make a decision, to make a choice, to choose something. There's a Hebrew word, and it has this ordinary sense as well, bachar, the Hebrew word, for those of you that have studied a little Hebrew, it's used in this ordinary sense. I'm giving you a brief overview here. It's used in a qualitative sense, and I bring this out because there's a difference of ideas concerning it. And there's the idea of God choosing. And these are, you might even say, theological usages where God makes decisions, God chooses certain things, or at least the scriptures reveal God as making these choices. And that's the whole idea here on the doctrine of election. We have corresponding Greek terms that I think reflect and are essentially equivalent to the Hebrew word. There's a verb form, eklegomai, is a Greek word, the verb form. And last time I mentioned that eklektas, I mentioned it as a noun form, and Sharon pointed out that the lexicons classify it as a as an adjective, and that's correct. But adjectives in some cases can be used as nouns, and this word is more often used as a noun than it is an adjective. But technically, according to the lexicons, it is described as an adjective, eklektas. But keep in mind, whether you view it as a noun or an adjective, it's primarily used like a noun or as a noun. And then there's another noun, ekloge, and the reason I include it is because this is the particular word in the same word group with carrying some of the same meaning that is used in the the passage that we were looking at in uh, verse 11, uh, Romans 9, 11. So that's the word that we'll take a look at. So let's look at this ordinary sense. Last time I I think we mentioned, did we look at the Luke ten forty two passage? I think I used it, but let me just quote it real quickly, and then we'll get to the ones that we hadn't looked at. It's used in this ordinary sense in both Old Testament and New Testament. That's why I have the Genesis thirteen eleven passage there as well, used in an ordinary sense. But in Luke ten forty two, we have Mary and Martha, and Jesus uses the word just in its everyday sense. He's not speaking theologically. He's not talking about election or any theological concept. And basically, Jesus says, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary, in other words, remember Martha is very busy preparing a meal and everything else, and she's getting little uh, stressed, stressed out. And Jesus is just trying to explain to her. And Mary is there. She's not lazy. She's not avoiding responsibility. She's at his feet. And then Jesus says, for Mary has chosen the good part. She made a decision. That's all it's, that's all the meaning that you have there, which shall not be taken away from her. In other words, this is a decision that Mary made. Similarly in Acts 15, 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men. Here's a decision. We have the options. We have several men here. We're going to choose certain ones for a particular purpose, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. So they selected these men to perform a certain task, to go on a particular mission. Again, just used in its ordinary sense of choosing one man or a couple of men here 
over other options. And then the Genesis 13, 11 in the Old Testament, where we have the, the Hebrew term Bachar, Abraham and Lot had a controversy with their flocks and their families. They had grown to such a size that the land was not able to, to keep them. So Abraham gives Lot the option, choose whatever you want, and I will move on and we'll, we'll settle in a different location. And then 1311 of Genesis says, so Lot chose Bachar. Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus, they separated from each other. Just an everyday choice. In this case, a place, a significant choice, but a choice of land, you might say, or dwelling, dwelling place. So it's used in this ordinary sense. And then we have the Hebrew, Bachar. Like I said, it's used in that ordinary sense in that Genesis passage, but there's other passages as well. And let's see if I have another, yeah, I have another scripture here where the Deuteronomy 30, 19 passage, and I'll read to you the Judges 14. Let me read the Judges 14 or 10, 14. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen among the Options, choosing God or false idols, kind of quasi-theological usage there, but it's just simply an ordinary choice, a wrong choice. And God says, go cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the times of your distress. And the Hebrew word can be used for choosing land, like the Genesis passage. In this case, choosing gods, uh, kind of a bad choice. There's a passage that speaks of choosing wives, just ordinary sense. And then the Deuteronomy 30:19 passage, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curses. So, passage says, choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. So here's an encouragement from God himself in the book of Deuteronomy to the children of Israel to choose life. In other words, choose a different lifestyle, choose life, choose the things of God. I would classify that as an ordinary usage of the word. It's used in a qualitative sense, something that is choice or special, you might say. And an example is the Judges 20, 15 through 16, skip down into the middle of the passage where it refers to 700 choice men. In other words, men that have certain characteristics from the cities on the day the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered and then 700 choice men. That's the Hebrew word bachar used in this qualitative sense. And again, it's not in this sense of election in the more specific theological sense, but simply men that have certain characteristics, in this case, very positive characteristics. They're called choice men. And the word is used also of inanimate things. For example, in Proverbs, Proverbs 8.10, take my instruction and not silver. And then he goes on, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. In other words, gold that is precious and choice, used in this qualitative sense. The Hebrew word, bachar, again. 
Or in verse 19, my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield is better than choicest silver. Now you have synonymous parallelism in both those verses, but the last one there, choicest silver. In other words, purified, high quality silver, qualitative sense. And then it's also used, obviously, of God choosing, and we'll get into some of those passages as I go further along here, where God is the subject and God is making the choice. In fact, he chooses individuals, and I'm going to come back to this because the focus of uh, Romans 9 is some of the selections of some of the individuals, including Abraham. But uh, the Deuteronomy 18.5 is one in a, a different category here. It speaks of Aaron, and it refers to Aaron. But let me read it to you. It'd be Deuteronomy 18.5. For the Lord your God has chosen him, referring back to Aaron, and his sons. So not only Aaron, but the Levites and his sons from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. In other words, God selected Aaron and his descendants to to function, and they have a special purpose. It's not used necessarily in this individual salvation sense, but it does have the idea of God selecting for a particular purpose Aaron and the, the, the descendants or the Levites that would come through him to perform a certain function in the nation of Israel. That tribe is set aside, chosen of God to function in a particular capacity throughout the Old Testament history of the nation of Israel. It's also used of just God is the subject here. God's selecting the temple and the tabernacle as his place for dwelling. Deuteronomy 12.5, for example. God says, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all of your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. So God chose the particular place that he would dwell, eventually in Jerusalem and eventually in the temple, but it would also apply in the Deuteronomy context to the tabernacle where God chose to dwell. And there's also passages, in fact, several of them where God chose Jerusalem as his particular dwelling place. And the specific place would be the temple. But in 1 Kings 8.16, at dedication of the temple, he says, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all these tribes in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel and then he goes on in terms of of uh, the city itself. Now, that one is not as clear. Let me find a clearer one. Verse 44. When your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city which you have chosen. This is God choosing. And this is a prayer of Solomon. The city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name. 
So Jerusalem as the city where God is going to basically be the focus of his work amongst the children of Israel. So these are examples of God choosing and these as well, you might say, even though God is choosing, are not specifically relating to this choosing for salvation or choosing of individuals in the sense that we think of in the New Testament. Remember, I'm giving you kind of the big picture here of how the word is used, and then we go to individual context to narrow it down in each particular place. And then he chose Israel, and there's lots of passages. One of the most clear passage is Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. And remember, Deuteronomy is written even before Israel is even a nation, before they're a nation. And the passage, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you. Now, this is a corporate choosing, in other words, the nation. For the Lord your God has chosen you, Bachar, the word, Hebrew word, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples. So there's a choosing. Now, I would say that there's individuals in the nation of Israel that, in fact, are, in fact, regenerate. So I would say that it's not only corporate, but what makes up the corporate are the individuals. But God has chosen them corporately as a nation out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Then verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor, and here you have it again, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So it's not because there were any inherent qualities in these Jewish people that God chose them but he chose them to set his love on them. And I think one of the things that I'm going to try to develop is when God chooses, he chooses from his own sovereign choice in fulfilling his own purposes, some of which we may not know. So that's the Hebrew word. There's also the Greek word, and let's get to it, eklegomai. By the way, the Hebrew term occurs 170 times in the Old Testament, and over half of them have God as the subject of the choosing, God choosing. The verb eklekomai only occurs 22 times in the New Testament, and it also has a variety of, of uses. It can be used in an ordinary sense, Similar to the, the one that I gave you, Luke 10, but also Luke 14, 7. And he began speaking a parable. This is Jesus to the invited guests. And when he noticed how they, now there were some uh, Jewish leaders there, how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. The little phrase had been picking out. This is the verbal word there. This is just the ordinary everyday sense. It's used in that way in other places as well. It's used of Jesus choosing the 12, and one of them is not saved. One of them is uh, even a, described by Jesus as a devil, but Jesus chose them. And uh, I think Pat pointed out the John fifteen nineteen passage. Uh, no, he pointed out another passage, but John fifteen nineteen, along with the choosing of the 12, 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. The word eklegomai, Jesus is the subject, choosing the 12, and there's several other passages that speak of him uh, choosing the 12. John 13, 18, somebody's got their microphone on. I'm getting a little feedback there. Unless you were going to interrupt me, come. Feel free to just jump in, anybody, at any time. Uh, you got to just kind of barge in, and I will listen to your comments or questions. John 13, 18, I do not speak of all of you. He's kind of pointing out Judas here. I know the ones I have chosen... Now, some of the other passages refer to choosing all 12 of them, but that those pertain to choosing them for the purpose of being the 12 disciples. But I think here he is narrowing a choice and distinguishing, I know the ones I have chosen, and I think what he's alluding to here, those 11 that are going to be regenerate or are regenerate and he will use them and also they have a further purpose and a further ministry of founding the church but i think there's a distinction there and the word eklegomai is used i have chosen but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me in other words that's the distinguishing the one that was part of the 12 but is not one of these that he has chosen in a, I guess you might say, more spiritual, eternal sense. Interesting passage there. So Jesus choosing the 12. And then we have the clearly theological passage relating to church age believers, Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4. Just as he, referring back to God, And we'll come back to this later, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world with a purpose that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God has purposed that we be sanctified. And I think what is assumed in the passage, obviously, even though it's got this other purpose, I think what's assumed in the passage is is the concept of eternal life and salvation. And some of you may dispute, there's the Ephesians 1.4, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in love carries on into the next passage. And then it's used in this adjectival form, used as a noun, the elect or elect ones or chosen ones. And we saw it in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's electas or elect or chosen. God is the one who justifies. That's Romans 8.33. I've got the Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of those chosen. Notice it's two words, but the word is eclectas. The chosen ones, the faith of the chosen ones of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Now, in this context, it refers to believers in the church age. And then I've also got the Mark 30, 20, if you want it, unless the Lord had shortened. Now, this is a 
reference to future believers outside of the church age. These are believers that are living during the tribulation after the rapture. And I use the Mark 13 passage. There's a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, the Olivet Discourse. Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse is chapter 13 and verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the electas, for the elect, New American Standard translates it. And then it adds, also it gives the verb form, whom he chose. He shortened the days. So unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So he uses both that adjectival form in a noun sense or in a noun usage. And he also uses the verb whom he chose to kind of emphasize them. Those are not church age believers. Those are individuals in the Mark 13 and Matthew 24 passage of future believers during the great tribulation. And then we have the noun usage or a a noun usage. And by the way, the adjectival form also is used coincidentally the same number of times as the verb, 22 times. This noun form, ekloge, is used only 11 times. And that's the one that we have in the Romans 9.11 passage. And then it appears later on in the Romans 11.5 passage. And I already read the Romans 9.11. That's the one that we started with. But the 11.5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. He's talking about the New Testament now. A remnant according, these are regenerate Jewish people in the first century. A remnant according to God's gracious choice. So election is a doctrine of grace. But the word choice there, ekloge, is the word that is in that context. So, Ray, what were the verses for um, the adjectival form? Okay, I gave you Romans 8.33, and then I showed uh, Titus 1.1 on the screen. There's actually 22 of them. I can give you some more later if you want them. And they also gave you the Mark 13.20. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. And just as Connie set the pattern, anybody else, just jump in. Otherwise, I'm kind of, what's the word? Can't think of the proper descriptive words. Okay, let's look at uh, the concept here, and I'd like to kind of first give you a big picture and speak of the biblical concept of choosing in a very, very broad sense, in a kind of a general sense of choosing and making decisions, sorting out options, In relationship to God, God choosing, now from the words that I gave you, or the terms themselves, I gave you some examples of God choosing, but let's even take it in a bigger sense where the Bible makes clear, and it doesn't even, and in fact, the word bachar and the Greek corresponding words don't appear, but we still have the concept of God making decisions, and we could categorize these uh, this, these general concepts. In other words, there's lots of places that speak of God's will. In other words, God desires certain things. 
In fact, he desires that all be saved. That's one of the things that you would categorize under God's will. And the word does not occur. That's why we use it, because it it applies in terms of the sense that we're looking at it. The Bible also lays out what theologians describe as decrees. And by the way, last semester, I taught a uh, course on theology proper, the doctrine of God. And I went into a lot of detail and gave lots of verses. So if you're interested in them, they're on my website. And the the course name is uh, Theology Proper, where I explain decrees. In other words, it seems that God in eternity past has made some determinations concerning big things. And these things are going to unfold as history unfolds. In other words, God is giving us his plan ahead of time that he has set forth as what theologians call as decrees. And I think they involve, to some extent, dispensations where God, at different time frames, makes choices to deal with humanity in different ways. There's a dispensation before the fall, you might describe, where conditions were different. Man is given the opportunity to make a choice, And he makes the wrong one. He chooses his own way rather than God, listens to the serpent rather than God's word. That introduces an entire different dispensation, you might say, from the fall of man to the flood. And you can go through the rest of the dispensations. But God making choices to do certain things in certain ways during certain particular time frames. This is all God choosing. And you could even include some individual choices. God chose to create a universe in eternity past. He didn't need to do that. God is self-existent. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. He didn't need the universe, but God chose to create. In fact, there's references to God doing that in terms of choosing as well, or at least alluding to it. When Adam and Eve sinned, God was not obligated to offer them redemption or salvation. But if you read Genesis 3, God, in fact, began the whole process of redemption with Adam and Eve. He convicted them and explained to them and illumined them and even provided a sacrifice. And he sets forth all of the parameters for salvation throughout the rest of human history with just Adam and Eve. Choices were made relating to salvation, but also relating to the rest of world history with Adam and Eve. Choices were made with Cain. Choices were made in terms of bringing a a Genesis flood. And a choice was made to save a family, not because of anything in them. In fact, the little phrase, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Remember that in Genesis chapter 6? It's not like... Noah was this special person that didn't have a sin nature or his sin nature was such that he chooses God. That word found favor is one, it comes out of a Hebrew word group for grace. It's a grace word. In other words, Noah, like every other sinner, found grace in the eyes of God. You and I found grace in the eyes of God and we live in a different time frame. So God chose to save some and to 
destroy and judge others. Similar with the nations, God chose nations to not only exist with the Tower of Babel and the scattering as a result of the uh, confusing of the languages, and then amongst those nations, God selected one individual, a choice. God chose Abraham, and there's passages that refer to him specifically. Now, Abraham has a particular purpose, so that electing purpose works itself in terms of the Abrahamic covenant and the creation of the nation of Israel, but part of that, I think, includes the salvation of Abraham as an individual, and so also Isaac, and so also Jacob, and so also some of the descendants. And in the first century, in Romans, Paul is separating out not all that are descendant of Israel are Israel. And I think he's identifying the few Jews in the first century that were regenerate in contrast to ethnic Israel that rejected the Messiah. So decisions concerning Israel, all of the covenants include God revealing choices and plans that he plans to affect, the exile as a discipline, the incarnation and everything in the New Testament and the coming of Christ, God making choices to unfold what he has planned in eternity past in world history, and yet future from our time, there will be a millennial kingdom that God will affect by his sovereign and divine choice because it's part of this broad plan that he has affected. So that's God's choice in a, in the broadest sense in relationship to the entire universe. So those are the general concepts and there are lots of specific examples and we could make a long list, but I, I just have a few here to fill up the slide. We see even beginning in Genesis 3.15, God has already revealed that there is going to be a seed of the woman that will, in fact, solve the problem of evil. And then after Genesis 3, you can trace that line of Messiah. And throughout the line of Messiah, there are choices. There's one individual in each generation, and then a particular son carries on, and you can trace it all the way through. You know, David had several sons, and Solomon wasn't the first, but Solomon was the son that the line of David would be carried through and eventually eventuate in Messiah. So the Messianic line, you see a series of things that God chooses individuals and that line is carried through to Messiah. And then the emphasis of the Romans 9 passage that we are looking at and will continue in is the line of Abraham's descendants. And I mentioned the Levitical priesthood from amongst the descendants of Abraham, so you could consider them. And Jesus calls attention to choices in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And in Luke 4, Jesus is the one that calls attention. He says there's starts out with there were many widows in the time of Elijah, but Elijah went to one. Jesus is calling attention to selection. Why that particular one? Well, there's a plan and there's a purpose in all of God's electing and choosing purposes. 
And then he goes on, there were many lepers in the days of Elisha. But if you remember the historical incident, it's only to Naaman that uh, Elisha heals of leprosy. So Jesus makes these distinctions. Now, the words choosing are not there, but the idea of God's choice in a broader sense. The miracles of Jesus, he didn't heal everyone. The miracles have a particular purpose, and certain individuals were healed and others not. What's the basis of those choices? These are choices of Jesus, or you might even say God himself. You could include other things like Mary. Why this humble girl out of all of the girls of Israel? Well, for one, she's in the line of Messiah. But there were other young girls, other young virgins that were of the line of Messiah as well. But Mary was chosen for a particular purpose and a particular thing that God had in mind. We mentioned the 12 disciples. You could even say that there was a choice in terms of Judas himself, not for salvation, but a choice in terms of being the son of perdition. Much like what we're going to see in Romans 9, an example that Paul uses is Pharaoh during the time of the children of Israel in in Egypt. So specific examples, and that brings us to uh, categories, and my time is running short here, so we may may need to just get through this. Maybe I might summarize this to get to the end here because there's a couple of slides I want to get to and we can always come back because I want to focus on one of these categories. But let me focus on a couple of things here. There's a passage, 1 Timothy 5.21, that uses the term and let's see, this is the noun form or the adjectival form. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus... But notice the word that is used there. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his elect angels. New American Standard translates it chosen. Same idea, that adjectival form. Now, you might be able to make the case there that it could be used in that qualitative sense. In other words, the the good angels, the quality angels, but the word is used there. Uh, did God make a choice there? Now, it's not for salvation, because angels don't experience salvation. Demons are not redeemed, and the good angels have not fallen, so they don't have salvation. So it has nothing to do with salvation. I would say that it, if there's a choice there, it's a choice of preservation and allowing or permitting other angels to, in fact, fall. Even Christ himself, obviously this is not for salvation because he was sinless. So it doesn't have anything to do with Christ being chosen in terms of his personal sin. Now he's chosen to be the propitiation for sins. And there's a few passages where the word is used. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, my elect. Tas, my chosen one, listen to him. That's the transfiguration and God the Father identifying Christ 
as the chosen one. Now you might make the same case. You might say, well, the choice one, the qual- the qualitative one. Well, you could also just as easily, depending on your perspective, you might say that uh, in some ways Jesus was chosen for a particular purpose, not for his own salvation, but in fact to be the the means by which God would bring salvation to all that would believe. So that's kind of a category. So Christ is elect, you could say, or at least choice. And there's also, in both Old Testament and New Testament, where the words are used. Now, by the way, these categories include the words, either Hebrew or Greek words, individuals for particular tasks, and some of them not for salvation. In other words, God has a variety of purposes when it comes to his decisions, when it comes to his choices. Sometimes we, and I'm saying this because sometimes we think in terms of the doctrine of election in this very narrow sense and try to import these ideas into some of these other passages and they just don't work. For example, with angels and with Christ and even with some of these individuals. For example, and we won't read these passages, but if you want to jot them down and I can get them to you later, but Cyrus in Isaiah 45, 1 through 4, but it's not used in terms of Silas being chosen for salvation. Cyrus, the king, the Persian king, was chosen to be the agent or the means by which God would bring his people back to the land of Israel. And notice what Isaiah 45, in fact, Isaiah even before several hundred years, predicts by name Cyrus. Let me read the passage. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Interesting word. Now, that's not the word choice, but anointed. In other words, God ordained the rising up of Cyrus, whom I have taken by the right hand. God is sovereignly orchestrating there to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And one of the doors that's going to be opened is opportunity to return. And then verse 2, I will go before him. God is going to sovereignly work. And then it goes on later on in verse 2, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Now that refers to Israel. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen, my elect, Israel, the nation. I also called you by name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. So in the context, we have the word, and we have the word anointed referring to Cyrus that God chose, not in a theological salvation sense, but to be the agent for the nation of Israel because Israel is his chosen. We will also see Pharaoh, and I'll expand this when we get to Romans 9. We haven't got there yet. In what way did God choose Pharaoh? Now, there's a particular reason and a particular purpose that's spelled out there, including the verses in the book of Exodus that are quoted and go back to Pharaoh, the Egyptian king. So we'll look at that later. Patriarchs, that's the focus that we've been looking at in Romans 9, 6 through 13, and it continues even beyond that because there's some issues that will be raised that Paul will try to answer. 
Moses in uh, Psalm 105, verse 26. I won't take the time. I'll let you look that one up where Moses had a particular mission. And obviously part of that mission required that he be regenerate. Although that's not the focus of the passage or the focus of the selection. It's to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. Levitical priests, we read the Deuteronomy 18.5. Individuals is the point here. Individual kings, uh, the even Saul, who was a king like the rest of the nations, and God removed the word Bahar is used in reference to Saul, and then clearly David. First Samuel sixteen eight through ten refers to David very clearly. In fact, there are several passages throughout the Old Testament where David is the choice. Now, again, the purpose specifically in the context is not necessarily salvation per se, but he is chosen for the purpose of being the preeminent king and the king through which the Abrahamic covenant will work itself out ultimately in Messiah. But the word is used in reference to David, and I think it presupposes that he is a God after God's own heart. In other words, it presupposes his salvation as an individual. And there's others as well, Zerubbabel, for example, and other passages referring. So these are individuals in the Old Testament primarily. And then here's Israel. And we're going to spend more time on Israel. So let me skip over this slide. And I'd like to give you some of these passages later on. And then that other category, Ephesians 1-4, in reference to believers during the church age. And when we talk about election, most of the time we're focusing on uh, this particular group. I wanted to give you the big picture so that now we can look at some of these individual passages and particularly also understand the Romans passage in terms of God's election in a broader sense. It does not always and in every passage refer to salvation. In fact, some say that it does not apply even in uh, Ephesians 1-4. So, that's the concept in its broadest sense and then down to the narrow sense. And let me conclude. I think we're getting close to the running out of time here. I may run over a little bit and I might even start here next time. Getting into the controversy, the common view, and this is what I want to contrast. This is not my view. This is the common view that sees the foreknowledge of God. God foresaw those who would choose him and then he chooses them, those that choose him. God chooses them, that those are the so-called elect. God foreknew those who would choose him, and then he chose them. That's the more common view that I think the church, in very large measure, and many within our free grace evangelical very conservative view, I think, lean in that direction as well. What I want to lay out real quickly here, and we'll expand this because our time basically is out. I want to contrast two views, and both of these views would be from the most conservative perspective, from within the free grace camp, and I'll let you kind of decide on your own. 
what I want to bring out is the issues involved so that it helps you make a decision. Option number one, I lay it out here in pink. And when it comes to the depravity of the will specifically, in other words, what is the effect? This is a, this is a, a difference amongst within free grace, or at least within me and free grace, you might say. In fact, I don't know too many that hold to my perspective here within that camp there. Many in the free grace view look at depravity in terms of volition and say that man is capable of believing the gospel message. Capable. That's why you use the word there. I will contend that depravity is total in the sense that the will is not only affected, but more than likely, probably even, and it's not totally clear, there's not a verse that indicates this, I'll use a verse, and option number one argues against that same verse, but anyway, I would use the verse, for example, the the passage in uh, the Romans passage that deals with depravity. There is none righteous, not even one. I think that's a general statement and everything else are the specific. There is none who understands. So the intellect is affected. Now, that doesn't mean that we can can no longer think. We can think. In fact, we have brilliant people that are unbelievers that have a very high capacity to use their intellect. But depravity says that they are incapable of seeing and understanding spiritual truth apart from salvation. That's depravity. I would say that volition has been affected just as much. We still have the ability to make choices. We make them every day, every instant. But I would contend that depravity has put us in a situation that we will never choose God because the the next verse says, there's none who understands, there's not. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. In other words, all have made choices and decisions. They've turned aside. Together they have become useless. I think this is volition. And remember last time when I described depravity from Genesis 3, I mentioned that volition is involved as well. So there's a little difference here. Verse 12 goes on, there is none who does good. In other words, makes those decisions and choices. There is not even one. So I see Romans 3 describing depravity affecting the will as well. So it affects volition. And option number one is the issue, is volition free, free will? Do we have free will? And I would use that same passage, none seeks. And in fact, I would say our will is damaged by depravity and sin and is put in a place where we won't seek. And our will is not really free. It's always affected by the rest of the sin nature and all that uh, is embodied in the unbeliever. And uh, what about the offer? Whoever believes, that's the stress of option number one. And I would say, yes, those passages refer to whoever, anyone. God does not. I don't believe in double predestination or this idea that God has selected some for hell. I don't think there's a verse necessarily. There's a, There may be one in Romans 9 that comes close, but I don't think that... That is a biblical thought. 
So I would hold to the same idea and stress those same passages throughout the Gospel of John and throughout other passages that whoever believes on the Lord will be saved, irrespective of this concept of selecting. Now, I would go back to the idea that none seeks, that the offer is available. In other words, God is not blocking the way, but depravity is such that none seeks him. And option number one, because man has volition, he is fully responsible. And I would say also, I would agree and use all of the passages and all of the support that supports the idea. Here's the tension, however. Man is fully responsible. God is never responsible because of holiness. God is never responsible for man's sin. Man and or fallen creatures, angels, are fully responsible for their own sin and are always condemned on the basis of rejection of Jesus Christ. Man is fully responsible. Option number one says that salvation is a total work of God, but man must believe it and receive it as a free gift by grace. And I would say that it's a total work of God as well. And I would say even faith possibly could be a a gift. And I'll expand upon that later. Is faith essential? Option number one, yes. Is faith required for salvation? Yes. And I would echo that because scriptures are very clear that apart from faith, you can not please God and faith is essential for everything. And we access God's salvation through faith. And again, this is the tension between God working in an individual in convicting and, and, and illuminating starting with calling, and even there's there's other passages. For example, Acts 16, 14, where it talks about Lydia, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And it says, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I think God opens the heart and we respond. But God is the one that works both to will and to do. Philippians chapter 1. So yes, faith is required, but I see God working to bring us to a point of, of faith. And I think many of you would would uh, would not argue with the idea that uh, many of us come to faith kicking and screaming, resisting and suppressing the truth. But there comes a day where God breaks through and opens our heart. And there's other things that we can talk about. Uh, but why don't we save these? This gives you an introduction at least to the two different possibilities here. And I want to skip ahead here to this should humble us in terms of God working. And God was pleased to break through our depravity and bring us perhaps kicking and screaming into a saving relationship with himself. And because we have this salvation and have experienced God's grace, we can respond in joy. And this gives us confidence on all of the promises that God has given us. 
And one of the purposes, Ephesians 1, 4, it should motivate us to live out our purpose and our the purpose of our choosing and election, holy living. And bottom line, it should bring us to our knees to glorify God and glorify him and him alone. Well, we didn't quite cover everything, but we can pick up. We always have next week, and I've gone way over, and I apologize for that. And if anyone has any questions, we can conclude. Some of you may need to go or have already gone. Any comments, questions? Pretty clear, huh? No questions, crystal clear, totally convincing. I just want to, I just have a prayer request. All right. Um. Jim Harrison asked that we pray for Mary. She had to take some extra pain meds today. Um, she's not feeling real well, so if we would just remember her in our prayers. Okay. Would somebody care to close us in a word of prayer, keeping that in, my, in mind? What was the name again? Ma- Mary? Mary Harrison. Mary Harrison. Anyone uh, care to close for us? I guess it's up to you, Connie. Okie dokie then. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time of remembrance where we can remember all that you have done for us. And this study where we can look back and see that it was your plan from the beginning. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us. You are an awesome and mighty and incomprehensible God, and yet you have allowed us to know you. Uh, each in our own way. You reveal to us what it is you have uh, to teach us. We thank you for that. Lord, I want to lift me. Father, I would love to see her healed. If her healing does not come till heaven, we accept that it be your will. Um, we desire for your will to be done in her life. I want to also lift up joy uh, in Thailand, uh, that she would be having a marvelous resurrection day and be able to share and shed your light and your love to all of those in her living situation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Any other comments before we shut this down? All right. Take care, Sharon. Take care, Sharon. Have a good week, everybody. Yes. Praise the Lord. He is risen. He's risen indeed. <laughs>